0: Welcome to Blockchain Won't Save the World. The podcast that aims to demystify blockchain and exponential technologies with real-world examples for beginners and experts alike. Because blockchain won't save the world. We will. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the show. Today, it's one for the culture. We're going to talk about patents with Keir Finlow-Bates. He's an inventor, the holder of a number of blockchain patents, the founder and CEO of Chainfrog and ThinkLayer, and he's also the first Englishman on the podcast. Kier, welcome to Blockchain Won't Save the World. Thank you very much. And we're here to talk about patents, and we've seen a number of significant patent announcements in the recent months. Visa looking at digital cash, General Motors around its IoT-enabled mapping for vehicles, companies like Walmart, Sony, Nokia, all making hundreds of patent applications. Why do companies patent in the blockchain space and what's involved?
1: Well, I think it's just an extension of what companies normally do. If you're in tech, then you're in the business of intellectual property and intellectual property needs protecting because unlike producing a piece of art or a sculpture or something like that, where you've got one unique entity, the fact is that ideas are very easy to take. If you see someone doing something clever it's really really easy to copy it so we have all these legal tools that allow us to ensure that inventors and the owners of these ideas get some kind of compensation for the effort so that's the kind of overarching theme behind it and historically companies have relied on patents to protect these ideas and blockchain is yet another idea and if you extend it or improve it then you're going to want to make sure that you have an advantage over the other people who haven't come up with that idea yet. So that's the kind of broad summary of why companies patent. However, blockchain, of course, is a bit different to coming up with a proprietary solution that nobody else has thought of, because you're building on what is an open technology.
0: And I love that you mentioned the open part of it, because there was a quote that I read not long ago from Vitalik Buterin, who said, if you're proud of your patents in the blockchain space, you clearly don't understand blockchain. Right. So it feels like there's a dichotomy right, between open source, open protocols, and those more maybe DLT or more enterprise focused solutions where it is designed to be closed or proprietary?
1: Yeah, I I think Vitalik is wrong there, in that there are plenty of examples of other technologies where the foundational technology was open. Um, However, people who are then building on it will want to be able to carve out a particular competitive niche. So yes, you can't go and patent blockchain. Uh, Nakamoto made sure of that by publishing the paper in 2008. And that's now prior art and is publicly available and nobody owns that. And we see the same thing in things like, for example, the Internet. The base protocols are freely available. Uh, You don't need a license in order to use them. And yet plenty of companies have built plenty of applications and services and things on top of that and have protected them with patents. So um, I personally think that that actually provides the best field for innovation. When you have an underlying technology that anybody can use, and then you give people the opportunity to build on top of that as they see fit and actually reap the benefits of their advancement of that. Now, it's unusual with blockchain in that that came out of nowhere, you know, the mind of one person, quite possibly, whereas the Internet was initially DARPA and you know, government funded project that was made publicly available. That's what I see in blockchain, the same kind of potential as you did with the internet. But building on top of that and improving it, that is definitely patentable. And I think that that is valuable. So uh, in that respect, I disagree with Vitalik there.
0: Very good. Starting off with some strong opinions, (laughs) and that's what this is about. You've applied yourself for many blockchain patents. Could you talk us through what's the process involved?
1: Yeah, so maybe it's a good idea for the listeners to sort of back up a bit and actually go over what a patent is for. And a patent is a compromise. There's this need for human knowledge to get out there so that people can work on improving it and so that it's not lost. But at the same time, when intellectual property or ideas are put out there, then they become available to everybody. And so there's a temptation on the part of innovators to keep them as trade secrets. Um, And there was a famous case back in history where the inventor of the forceps for childbirth deliveries kept it secret through three generations of the family before finally it got revealed to the detriment of society in general. So a patent is a compromise whereby the state says, we want you to reveal your inventions, And in return, we're going to give you an exclusive license in order to exploit that invention or in order to license on to other people the right to exploit that invention. That's kind of what a patent is for. And it's not a perfect system. And we've seen all sorts of problems over the decades and centuries with it. However, it's kind of like democracy. It's the worst system except for all the other ones. As for getting a patent, well, you know, you have to have an idea first. And the idea has to be what is called novel and non-obvious. So you can't take somebody else's idea and pass it off as your own if that idea has already been put out there. And if your idea is an obvious combination of several other ideas, then you're not going to get a patent on it either. So that's the first step, really, is have the new idea and then go and check that nobody else has had it and publicized it before. And then you're at the point that you can start the process rolling in order to get a patent. And that process is a really legal one. There's a whole lot of administration. There's pages and pages of legislation and rule books that the patent offices use in order to go through examining what it is that you've invented and deciding whether or not you deserve to get this legal protection in the form of a patent. And it's a tricky area of law because the patent examiners, the people at the patent offices who actually look at these inventions, have to have qualifications both in STEM. So they have to have some kind of engineering, mathematics, or technological degree, and they have to have a legal degree as well. So you can see it's drawing on two different fields. And then you go through this process where you have to write the patent up in exactly the right way using the correct legal terms. And... And in the patent world, there are certain words that mean something different to what they do in everyday life. For example, the word comprise is used a lot, and that means that your invention consists of. But if you use the word consists of, then it means consists of that and only that. So you use comprise, which opens it up to meaning that other things may be included too. And there's heaps and heaps of legalese. And then finally, the very last bit are what are called the claims. And these are the things that you're actually protecting. And they are written almost like a computer program. I think that's what first appealed to me when I uh, started reading about patents, is that somebody coming from the software industry, looking at the claims, it was like learning another programming language. It just happened to be a weird kind of English. And you, you go through this process with the patent office where you argue with the examiner that you should get the patent and they say, no, you shouldn't. And you get a lot of what are called rejections, non-final and final ones, except even the final ones aren't final because you can appeal and keep going. And then if you're lucky enough, at the end, you get a notice of allowance and the patent is issued and it has a number slapped on it. And uh, you get sent a nice copy of the patent with a gold star stuck on the front. And if you're working for a company, then normally they also give you a metal plaque to hang on the wall. As you're at IBM, I'm sure even in the office where you are in Ireland, there's probably some corridor somewhere with loads of these plaques lined up. And uh, it's a good feeling when you get one. It feels like an achievement. It feels like, you know, winning a merit award at school, but a hundred times better.
0: Recognition of hard work, the learning of legalese, and I suspect a significant amount of time in the paperwork and the administration too. Could you tell us a little bit about the patents
1: that you hold? What have you patented so far? Well, the thing you have to be aware of is this being the inventor on a patent and then there's being what is called the assignee of a patent. That is the person who actually owns the patent and has the right to then go out and use it. And um, I'm named on 36 patents as an inventor at the moment. And I think there's another couple coming out sometime in the next month or two. But I only actually own uh, nine of those. Or is it 10? Yeah, it's 10 actually now of which seven are blockchain inventions. So maybe should we talk about the ones that I actually own myself then?
0: Absolutely, let's do that.
1: I've covered quite a wide variety of areas. I really started working full time in blockchain in early 2016, really having read about it for five years and filed various ideas with my then employer um, and having them turn most of them down because they didn't have a clue what I was talking about. The Patent Review Board didn't know the difference between blockchain and Bitcoin, for example. It was great to be able to focus on that full-time, and I was really looking for broad applications. So I was trying to avoid the kind of inventions that are do this traditional task, but with a blockchain, because everybody comes up with those ideas. And I thought, this is not worth exploring. You know, people who are in farming will go, I'll use a blockchain to track cattle. And people who are in the automotive industry might say, I'm going to use a blockchain to put serial numbers on cars, things like that. Those kind of ideas, to me, seem really obvious in the ordinary use of the word obvious in everyday speech, and therefore, actually not that interesting. So I was looking at kind of one layer up from blockchain. What can you do to move it beyond just the uh, concept of cryptocurrency, which was how it was being used at the time and do further stuff, but not focus in on a particular industry. So, actually, the first thing I looked at was a peer to peer geolocation system because I'd previously been working as a test manager in the positioning and location division, satellite navigation division. And I thought, can I carry that over and actually solve an interesting problem in locationing, which is the problem of proof of location? How can I prove to somebody that I was at a location at a certain time? Now, as it happens, I didn't come up with the solution, but I did come up with a few pieces. And that particular one was about reporting your longitude and latitude and altitude on a blockchain so that you have a time stamped record that you reported that you were at a certain place at a certain time that you then can't go back and delete and edit, or that you can use as evidence to somebody else that you said you were there at this time. So it doesn't fully solve the proof of location problem. And I actually believe that that problem isn't really fully solvable, but it gives you a level of confidence that you wouldn't have before if you're just self-reporting after the fact that you were somewhere. Then I started looking at the power consumption of the mining process to secure open public blockchains. Again, I think that's ultimately an intractable problem, but I was looking at ways of building consensus systems that are a bit more efficient than the one that Bitcoin currently uses. And I have that one still pending actually, um, but it's been published for quite a while. So those are kind of early ones. And then I really got interested in uh, databases and connecting them to blockchains using this familiar technology of the database in order to provide an interface for programmers to work with blockchains without having to actually know what's going on under the hood in the blockchain itself. They can just use all their existing legacy tools and all their existing expertise, but suddenly their database, as it's in front of them, their MySQL or SQL Server or Oracle or whatever, Database system suddenly takes on the properties of a blockchain by being connected directly to it. And it adds networking between databases that maybe didn't have it before and gives you database synchronization for free. And that's the kind of synchronization stuff that database companies actually charge their customers very, very heavily for. For example, Oracle has Golden Gate as a piece of software to synchronize databases. And it, it's not cheap. And yet with a blockchain, uh, you can suddenly do that very, very cheaply. And you can do it between different companies and different entities that are not fully cooperating with each other. So I thought that would be exciting. And uh, that's actually the foundation of what I found a chain Chainfrog for. Now, as it happens, we were a bit ahead of the curve and we really couldn't get any market traction with that. We spent so much time in sales trying to explain what a blockchain was, what properties it has, uh, what usefulness it might have, that we actually didn't manage to get a single sale. So it's my great entrepreneurial failing in that respect. And then Chainfrog pivoted because it turned out that we could make more money from patents than we were making from trying to sell a product based on those patents. And now Chainfrog is basically an IP holding company where I invent stuff patented and then look to license or sell the patents on. So that's the business model there.
0: I'd love to double click on that one for a second because going from the idea of creating a product or having a product-led business to just focusing on patents and monetizing that, I'm really curious, and I'm sure the audience are, how does that work in practice?
1: Well, it is tricky because you go from a model where you're looking to sell, relatively speaking, a high volume of low-cost things In a software business, you know, you have your product and you price it at a reasonable rate, hopefully, that you can make more and more sales. And as a result, you don't have all your eggs in one basket compared to the current model that we have, which is that we're looking for a big sale every now and again. So, uh, yes, in that respect, it's quite frightening because you have a certain amount of runway because you've made a sale, and then you and the patent broker are looking to sell the next one, and the pipeline is very, very slow because the Time it takes to get a patent granted is very, very long. Plus, you're having to make predictions about where the industries are going to go and how the shifting landscape of blockchain is going to move, so that you actually patent something uh, relevant. And you know, as Yogi Berra said, making predictions is really hard, especially about the future. And we're talking about three, five, ten years in the future here. So it's uh, it does feel like a risky business in some ways, but that's kind of offset by the value of a patent when you do actually sell it. Um, And also personally for me, I find it much more exciting to be inventing and patenting and then hoping to license or sell those than I do from going from sales meeting to sales meeting, trying to sell yet another unit of a software product. That's the kind of thing that never really appealed to me. And I did it for the sake of the company in the early days. But if you're not doing something without your heart being fully in it, then you're kind of lowering your chances of success.
0: And I'd love to hear more about the Finlow Bates patented discovery process. I'm imagining there's a lab, inventions, bubbling, beakers and foam and stuff everywhere, pictures on the wall, dark room, loud noise, music. That's just my personal view of how I would set it up if I were an inventor. What's your approach? Compared to some who would imagine a co-creative process where you've got The industry or participants from the industry that you want to work with you're involving people who have a problem to solve in your case maybe it's slightly more isolated or it's slightly different how do you go through creating and inventing
1: well i think everybody is going to have their own way of doing that and i actually personally believe that pretty much anybody can be an inventor because the inventing process is usually concerned with spotting a problem and then coming up with a solution. And the tricky part is normally spotting the problem. Once you've actually worked out what the problem is and you really nailed it down, then nine times out of 10, the solution just drops out naturally. Most people train themselves to ignore the problems that they face in life. You go to a shop and you try to pay for something with a card and it's awkward and people just put up with it because they do it day after day after day and they get used to the weaknesses and problems with the system and they subconsciously build workarounds. Now, the inventor, on the other hand, has to become someone who becomes hyper aware of those problems and finds them really, really annoying. And so being an inventor does have a downside, which is that the world looks really broken and irritating and frustrating. So once you get into that mindset, then you can invent pretty much anywhere. I find that the inventions that I come up with usually just pop into my head late at night when I'm trying to go to sleep. That's really annoying, actually. Or when I'm going for a walk. Or when I'm reading an article about some technology. I think there's a part in the back of my mind that is always questioning, is this problem being addressed properly? Is this article actually identifying what the issue is? And does the solution that is being presented therefore really make sense? So that's the the kind of nine out of 10 inventions. And then the 10th one is probably more of the traditional kind of doing some research, digging deeper, unpicking how things are working, and then trying to put it back together in a better way. But really, inventing is not as difficult as people might first believe. It's just a matter of looking at the world in the right way. And I think I got that perspective because I was a test engineer for 15 years. So I I spent a lot of time looking at things, trying to find out where they didn't work. Back as a test engineer, it was to then go and proudly announce to the developer that their code was defective. Now I'm sitting in my my van, actually. That's where I work. And I'm then looking at the problem and having to fix it myself with the invention.
0: Got you. And I love it. There's a couple of things in there. One is the validation that actually it's less often about perspiration and focus and piles and piles of paper. It's actually about clearing your minds to recognise the opportunity, which I really like. And I love watching your walks in the woods and wherever it is that you go to talk and do your vlogs because it feels like a very peaceful and very relaxing space. I also love that you work in a van. <laughs> I don't think there's anything more inventive
1: than that, right? Uh, yeah, I got this camper van because it worked out at about a tenth the cost of building a shed. be able to go and invent in. Plus, if I move house, then I can move my lab because it has its own wheels. So uh, you see, there's a solution to a problem. And most people wouldn't have even identified that there was that potential problem in the future.
0: Got it. It's the Finlow Bates Rolling Circus. I want to talk about the application of blockchain towards the patent space, because obviously, you focused on patents for blockchain solutions. I wonder, do you see any opportunities for using blockchain to support those people trying to manage the patent process?
1: I do think there is. I know that WIPO had a a conference about a year ago where they got a number of different parties. And the main participants, I think, were the Australian Patent Office and the Russian one, where they were looking at how could blockchain help. The patent space and of course there is always a problem if you take a, a solution and you try to fit it to a problem if you're kind of single-mindedly going in there trying to use that hammer to hit something as though it's a nail and then you find out subsequently that it's not a nail that you're hitting um, however you can still use it as a tool to examine the situation or the case and then you may find out that it's relevant and i think for patenting We have a number of issues there. Firstly, every jurisdiction has its own patent office. So you have the US PTO, you have the European Patent Office, and then all the European countries have their own patent offices too. And you have China and Australia, heaps and heaps of them. And when you get a patent in one of those jurisdictions, it's only valid in that jurisdiction. And although the patent offices are interested in sharing data with each other as to what patents are being applied for, that's only to ensure that there's no prior art on the invention that's being submitted. The patent officers themselves are not really interested in cooperating because it's not relevant to them. So that first area, blockchain is not going to be relevant because you're not looking to enable cooperation between different groups on the core activity of those groups because they don't care. They're independent jurisdictions and you you can't take a US patent and use it in Europe or in China. However, I think there are a few features of blockchain that may well be of interest to patent offices. The first is the fact that it offers an audit trail. So, Patent offices are very concerned with something known as a priority date. That's the date at which you disclosed your invention to them. And If you disclose the invention to a patent office on a certain date and then someone else comes up with the same invention just an hour later and discloses it, they're too late. It's first come, first served. So a blockchain could be used to allow that registration of priority dates. That I would say is the first area. At the other end of the process, when the patent has been granted, so now you as a patent holder own effectively a, a virtual asset, so, you know, patent is not a real object. There's a problem when you are trying to sell these patents because there's not clear marketplaces. There are certain websites where you can go and trade patents, but the patent sales process is an odd one it's a very idiosyncratic world and secondly the process whereby you transfer the patent involves getting a lawyer and drafting up a contract and there are registries within the different patent offices where you can say this was assigned to me now it's assigned to this person but you don't have to do it that way you can actually just have a contract where you sign over the rights to the patent but as far as the patent office is concerned you still own it And then if the new owner wants to assert their right, then they can enforce that contract and then cause the assigning to happen. So it's a funny, funny world. And blockchain could allow you to represent the patents as digital assets or tokens and allow trading of those assets and grouping and even allow for the splitting, say, of royalties received from licensing to different parties. So those are areas where I think blockchain may be relevant. Strangely enough, given that they're in the business of innovation and leading edge technology, patent offices are actually quite conservative. In that sense, they're a bit like the banking industry. and You can see that if you go to the uh, United States Patent and Trademark Office website, that a lot of the stuff on their website, particularly their web tools, uh, look like they were written 10, 15 years ago.
0: And as you were talking through, obviously, we're not looking to try and find ways to apply the blockchain hammer to whatever nails we have out there, right? It's not about trying to find places to insert blockchain because we want to stay busy. You actually started talking about brokers, intermediaries, recognition of IP, transfer of assets, all of which we do today in, in some cases a not particularly technologically enabled way or in a not particularly digital way or a not particularly transparent way. I also like that you broke down that the international parties or the multiple patent offices in different states don't want to collaborate or don't often have a reason to collaborate, which says, actually, there's not a global network story here. So in your own way, you've helped to break down a how do we think about a blockchain opportunity or the capabilities within, which I think is really helpful. I want to talk about blockchain more broadly. Obviously, this is a space that you spend a lot of time thinking about. Are there any obvious places where The capabilities that sit within blockchain and the capabilities we have available to us could really transform certain sectors, certain ways of working that we haven't been able to do just yet.
1: Here you're hitting on a more sort of psychological and philosophical problem because if you look at the practicalities of it, you've actually covered a lot of these things in previous podcasts, blockchain for identity, blockchain for IoT, blockchain for supply chain. These are specific areas where we can see problems and blockchain may offer solutions. But the funny thing with blockchain is that when you start delving into it and looking into it, it actually changes the way that you see the world. And getting society as a whole to change the way that they see the world is a slow process. You can't accelerate it dramatically. Uh, You can't suddenly have 7 billion people all have a light bulb moment at the same time. And for me, for example, a personal example would be how looking at blockchain and Bitcoin changed the way that I viewed something as simple and common as money. When I first read Nakamoto's paper in 2009, my concept of what money was, was not much different to that of my 12-year-old son today. It was the stuff that I had in my wallet and in my bank account that I handed over in order to get goods. And I hadn't really thought about it much more than that. And then when you start looking at how our financial systems actually work and digging into it, you suddenly discover that money has many, many layers. And so, yes, on the personal transaction between me and a shopkeeper, money is one thing. When you start looking at it in terms of how governments use it and how banks function you realize that it's a much more complex beast than how it first seems from your personal experience and i think blockchain does that in a lot of different areas and we're still just at the very beginning of exploring and unpacking previous assumptions we had about how the world works and society works and transactions work and things like that and blockchain kind of is the gift that keeps on giving because the more you think about it and the more you delve into those things, the deeper an understanding you get of what is going on and your worldview shifts and suddenly five years down the line you realise that you're now seeing activities that are taking place in the world in a totally different light to the way you saw them five years before.
0: I can totally relate to that and I agree wholeheartedly. If you could unpick any technology down to its component parts, what are the capabilities that are provided to you? How can that be applied to solve certain problems? When you look at using blockchain, you're looking at bringing multiple parties together. You're looking at breaking down silos. You're looking at digitizing and automating areas of clearing and settlement that oftentimes have intermediaries or brokers in the way. You're providing greater transparency over activity that's happened, better auditability. And These are quite opaque or abstract terms in isolation, but once you delve deeper into the problems of an industry or something you face on a day-to-day basis, it can become very clear saying actually if we work together we could solve a bunch of problems here. But in reality it's about collaboration models, it's about sharing and combining the various different data pools that we have and automating things to make commerce flow more smoothly, to reduce risk, to provide a better experience for individuals, customers, governments, citizens, whoever that might be. And I also feel a little bit sad every time somebody says blockchain is a hammer looking for a nail, because that's really just a perspective on how people talk about it. Blockchain isn't anything. It's a concept. It's a series of ones and zeros that we can apply, protocols that we can follow, standards that we can use. It doesn't have a purpose. To me, it's more about how people articulate the opportunity, in the same way you could with artificial intelligence or Internet of Things or sensors or cloud. So on behalf of the people of blockchain, I feel a little bit sad when people go that way, and I feel it's something of an intellectual shortcut. But I'm going to get off my soapbox and ask, from your perspective, are there other things apart from orthodoxies, intransigence, or people's lack of understanding that are also holding back progress?
1: I think the main thing from my perspective that is holding back blockchain is that it reminds me a bit of that parable of the blind men and the elephant, where each one grabs hold of a part of the elephant, and they one says, it's like a snake, and another one says, no, it's like a tree, and another one says, no, it's like a piece of rope, and the final one says, no, it's like a sheet, and they're holding onto the trunk and the ear and the leg and the tail. But of course, the whole entity together is what the thing is really all about. It's because we're still trying to come to grips what this invention really offers, that it's just going to take time and it's going to have to become more and more familiar until eventually more and more people can just look at it and say, yes, that's an elephant and not look at the individual components. And this is not easy because blockchain is a combination of different parts. All the pieces that blockchain is made up out of asymmetric key cryptography, peer-to-peer networks, hash link lists, all these individual parts were around way, way before, blockchain was actually invented and it just so happens that when you put them together something emerges almost magically that it has radically different properties than all the individual pieces and yet people have this tendency of when they're looking at a technology to zoom in on a particular thing. So, if you're talking about enabling networks, you're going to start looking at the peer to peer stuff. If you're talking about identity, you're going to start drilling down on the asymmetric key cryptography. If you're talking about making something tamper proof, you're looking at the hash link list. And if you're looking at building consensus within a group, then you start looking at Byzantine fault tolerance, um, proof of work, those kind of things. So, um, it's getting that overall view that is the hard step. And unfortunately, It, as as I was saying about changing your worldview, it's very hard to get a group of people to all shift to a new perspective at the same time. It just takes time for everybody to get comfortable with and finally sort of internalize and accept that this is how it is now compared to how it used to be. And then it becomes easy to apply. And we've seen the same thing with all sorts of inventions. Databases are the same. In the 80s, when database companies started having some level of success, you had a lot of cases where people were going and sticking databases in offices to track things. And then the people in those offices were going, well, hang on, this is a lot more awkward. Now I have to walk over to this computer and turn it on. and um, I don't know how to use it. Why can't we go back to the filing cabinet? Plus, I could go and ask you know, Margaret, the secretary, to go and get that particular index card out for me. And now I have to do it myself. The world then changed and filing cabinets with cards in them aren't used anymore and they don't make sense to us anymore, but it took time. Really our biggest enemy, in quotes, although it's not really an enemy, is just time. It's waiting for these things to become internalised. But that's just my personal take on this.
0: I appreciate that. And that's why we're here is to get some of the Finlow Bates' wisdom. In reality, talking about asymmetric key cryptography and hash linked lists probably aren't the way to get non-technical people excited and interested in the space or to try and pivot their perspective. It's more about what are the outcomes or what are the capabilities as much as it is about technical terms. I had a really good comment yesterday on my thread of someone said, I get really confused by all of the different Hyperledger projects, for example. Hyperledger Cactus had just been announced. There are a number of different projects there. I get confused by the hype. Why are there so many different flavors of blockchain? Do we need all of these projects? Is this relevant? And in reality, the average person probably doesn't need to know the difference between Besu or Cactus or Indie or Fabric. Those people who are architecting the solutions underneath probably do. But to think about the capabilities of a distributed ledger or how to use a public blockchain, you don't need to know the difference between Cactus and Besu. You just need to think about how you address the problem. Yes, I think you're
1: right that talking to the average person about blockchain, you should steer well clear of mentioning hash link lists or asymmetric key cryptography. That's why I prefer to use terms like, for example, ownership or control when it comes to a digital asset that you as an individual control that asset and not some third party. People can understand that. They understand the difference between money being in your bank account and if the banking service go down, you can't access it versus actually having cash in their wallet, which regardless of power failures or network congestion, you can still just take out a note and hand it to somebody. Similarly, the concept of censorship. I know that uh, Richard Gendel brown over at R3 is very keen on that concept as differentiating open blockchains from, say, databases and centralized systems. That when you as an individual want to conduct a transaction, then if it's got to be authorized by a central authority, your transaction can be censored. And we've seen that, for example, in banks a couple of years ago, refusing to allow their customers to use their credit cards or debit cards to buy cryptocurrency. They just made an arbitrary ruling that they are not happy with whoever out there in Portland, Oregon or uh, Austin, Texas, using their uh, credit card to buy some random cryptocurrency and they censored it. And I think as time is going on, more and more of us are becoming concerned about these kinds of censorship, these kinds of restrictions that these other parties can put on us. So it's not just a matter of those intermediaries taking a cut for being a broker. It's the fact that they can actually stop things in their tracks arbitrarily. Those kinds of concepts people can understand. And then you can say blockchain offers the possibility of sidestepping these restrictions.
0: Got you. I would be remiss not to ask you about some of the videos and the content that you create because I've been following your videos for years. I really enjoy the content and you've been able to spread your thoughts and your experience over a number of different topics, identity, money, underlying protocols, transactions, government, voting, all of the different topics of the day. You've covered a huge amount on your vlog and anybody who hasn't checked out Keir's vlog, please do on LinkedIn. It is one of the first places I go to learn more about blockchain, ironically from an inventor in a van in Finland. But I wanna hear a little bit more about the thought process behind the content you create. What gets you out into the wilderness to go and talk about blockchain and where do you get the inspiration for your
1: vlogs? It was funny actually because it started off, I think, in late 2017. And I'd been reading stuff on LinkedIn, but never really posting anything. And I just suddenly thought, look, I've got a phone. It takes video. I've got nice forests that I like going for a walk in and thinking about stuff. What if I started talking about what I'm thinking about while I went on those walks? And so I set myself a challenge to post a video every day for a year which at the time seemed incredibly ambitious but it actually turned out to be much much easier than i thought and i also went and looked at the process of how do i take these videos how do i put them on linkedin how do i get captions on them stuff like that and streamline the whole thing so really from start to finish from walking out the front door to the post arriving on linkedin if it's a three-minute post then it's about 10 to 15 minutes work so it really isn't backbreaking. as for the ideas when i'm reading an article or when i'm thinking about a concept if a particular sentence sticks out in my mind i write it down and then before i go to bed i look at the last 10 items i have on a list and go to sleep and then in the morning normally i wake up and i have some kind of concept about what i want to say concerning that particular sentence or topic or question and then i just go for the walk turn on the camera and uh, have my initial intro and then just start talking and it just seems to flow the subconscious is really quite an amazing thing and it puts together all sorts of bits and pieces in the back of your mind and if you give it the chance to actually step to the front and talk then okay sometimes a whole load of gobbledygook or gibberish comes out but sometimes you can actually come up with a concept or an idea or an angle that uh, might be of interest to other people
0: That's really interesting. I might just give that a try. I don't know if I want to be starting to put some of my work questions or some of my podcast questions to my brain just before I go to sleep, but if it works for you, maybe it can work for me too. So I'm going to give that a try. I'm curious, the comment section around your videos is normally buzzing with opinions. What are some of the most interesting comments and what are some of the most challenging comments that you typically receive?
1: So firstly, I really, really appreciate all the comments that I get on my posts. Uh, There's a wide variety of people with all sorts of opinions and all sorts of technical expertise and knowledge and every single one of those comments is great to have except for the ones that have nothing to do with the post and are just trying to promote a particular service i.e they're trying to co-opt my post into a form of advertising for them those I'm not really happy with, but the rest doesn't really matter what somebody is saying or how they're saying it. It's just online. So if somebody gets head up and a bit excited and maybe a bit aggressive or insulting, well, for me, that's water off a duck's back. The fact that they're engaging is brilliant. I particularly love it when people actually spin off from what I'm saying and start getting into a debate or a discussion or an investigation, between themselves. It's like you've kind of introduced two people at a party and you're talking and then you can walk away and they can continue having illuminating and entertaining conversation. So in that sense, LinkedIn and social media are wonderful that they enable that kind of thing.
0: Totally agree. And I get the same sense of pride when I see it happening, when you pose a question or you put out some content and you start seeing the dialogue with the community happening in absence of you having to do any sort of facilitation or any sort of provocation, which I think is great. And that's one thing that I really enjoy about working in blockchain is you've got people from all around the world contributing ideas, be they strong opinions, lightly held opinions, technical, non-technical. We're all trying to understand the space. We're all trying to make the world a little bit better by contributing our ideas. Yes, there are trolls. Yes, there's false advertising. We get that. But shout to the community because that's what from a personal perspective, makes my experience on LinkedIn and my experience working in blockchain all the more rewarding. And actually just from having done this podcast, we're over 80 different countries listening. We've got people in Iran, Guadeloupe, Malta, Monaco, South Korea, Azerbaijan, all listening into the show. And for somebody who sat in their home, in their home office with a microphone and talking to some friends and colleagues on the internet, that's amazingly powerful. And again, shout out to anybody who's listening to this show so far. Kier, before we close, I want to give you a chance to let people know how can they find you, how can they get in touch, and what else have you got going on in your life?
1: Right. So the first go-to place for me would be LinkedIn. Um, so I'm on LinkedIn. Well, you can actually find me very easily because I have a very unique name, not just a very unique name, a totally unique name. There's nobody else called Kier Finlow-Bates out there in the world. LinkedIn is where I post articles and these video posts and occasional shorter posts as well on mainly blockchain, but also entrepreneurship and a wide variety of other topics, actually. But the focus really is predominantly on blockchain. Then I have a YouTube channel, which is actually where I start off with my posts before I move them to LinkedIn. So if you want a rougher preview of what's going to turn up on LinkedIn, it usually turns up there about two or three hours earlier. And that's youtube.com slash thinklair. Finally, there's the website of my companies. So chainfrog.com and thinklair.com. And uh, you can reach me, my emails listed on those as well. And I'm always happy to connect with people. I'm always happy to engage in a dialogue and I'm um, you know, happy when people reach out.
0: Very good. And thank you again so much for coming on the show. Thank you for the content that you create. As I said, I learn something every time I watch you speak, which is really great for me. And I'm sure a number of other people are very grateful for that in the community. Please continue doing what you're doing. And thanks again for coming on the show. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Blockchain Won't Save the World podcast. All opinions here expressed are those of myself and my guests. If you're looking for more, You can follow me on LinkedIn for more blockchain-related content. And until next time, stay safe out there.